Hello there, and welcome back for another episode of the Wayward Podcast, where there is a word, there is a way. My name is Jonathan Robinson, and I am glad that you could join me here today. I just made myself a cup of coffee. I am drinking like a, uh, it's kind of a dark raspberry, or a raspberry dark chocolate, and it tastes good. Uh, delicious. So, uh, coffee is the only way to go. <laughs> All right. On our previous episode, we began an Advent series. And we're going to be continuing through that uh, through the month of December. And I already posted a, a, the first episode in, a ser- in this series on, um, I think, Wednesday. And I am posting another one uh, today on Friday. Why so soon? Well, uh, because I I think I have about six episodes planned, and there are five weeks in Advent, so I'm trying to get it all lined up with the calendar. So uh, that meant uh, doing two episodes uh, here at the beginning. So that's how we're doing it. And um, so, yeah. Um, you got two episodes to enjoy this week. So if you haven't heard the first one already in this series, it kind of establishes the, uh, the, the foundational material. Um, you know, Advent is a very special season for a very special reason. And in a word, that reason is hope. And in our later episodes, we will gradually dive into what that, specific hope is. But for now, we are still trying to appreciate the settings or the world conditions that are in need of that hope. And so our in our previous episode, we looked at the world or the environment or the setting that would shape the Advent story. And if you haven't already, I encourage you to go back and listen to it it goes into more detail, but what we saw in a lot of the history of Judea, uh, a lot of the stuff we examined, what we saw was a world that was wrestling with hopelessness. And now in today's episode, we'll get to see that hopelessness at work a little bit more tangibly in the life of one of Israel's servants. And then we'll see where that story goes. So uh, we're just going to return to the text that we left off from in the last episode, and we'll just jump into it. Uh, The text is in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. I'll give you a second to uh, flip over there if you're following along in your Bible. It gives me a chance to take another sip of my wonderful raspberry dark chocolate coffee. All right. And let us begin. Verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. 
His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when he was serving as priest before God during his section's turn of duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Okay. Now... We have already talked about how the history in Judea had shaped a national atmosphere that felt quite hopeless. Now here we get a sense of that heaviness in the form of a man named Zacharias. And Zacharias was a priest. And among amongst their um, fellow Jews, being a priest was a privileged role. The people looked up to the priests, and in a sense, the priests enjoyed a bit of prestige. But in another sense, serving as a priest was not what it once was. On a larger national level, the priesthood in Judea was enduring a lot of what could be called traumatic memories uh, the national failure of exile from generations earlier was a memory of guilt and shame that still loomed large over both the people's and the priests' collective memories. And then later down the line in 164 BC, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig on the temple altar. And that that event was so insulting and viewed as a desolation that it it just seared itself into the consciences and the institutional memory of the people and the priests and then about a century later and uh, during the arrival of Rome in 63 BC uh, when General Pompey um, uh, came into Rome, and there was a lot of uh, Jewish defenders fighting back um, against the Romans, and I think they were located right there near the temple. And Pompey, I believe, massacred some 12,000 Jews defending the temple. And afterwards, he entered into the holy place, which was, you know, a Gentile entering the Holy of Holies was an act of defilement. And when he saw that there was no idol there, he declared the Jews to be atheists or godless. And this event was experienced as a kind of violation. And considering how now in this time there were various priestly groups that had compromised themselves and cooperate, cooperated with the Romans... It's reasonable to imagine that the privilege of serving in the temple may have seemed quite a bit diminished. And if this wasn't enough, Zacharias was vexed by 
more personal matters. Um, while Zacharias had belonged to a privileged priestly lion, and he and his wife had spent their lives remaining righteous and faithful to the law of Moses, Zacharias and Elizabeth had no son to pass their legacy onto, or to pass their faith onto, or to pass their servant priestly role onto. And apparently, this had been a frequent subject of their prayers, and up until now, even into their old age, their prayer request had been repeatedly denied. So, with the combination of both the national memories and their heaviness, and his own personal frustrations, I believe these factors allow the suggestion that Zacharias was probably a bit heavy-hearted as he entered the temple's holy place that day. And even though he was there to offer incense to the Lord, I surmise that for him, hope was a hard thing. But why is this day different than all others? Because on this day, in this place that has seen more than its share of horror, both the place and the priest are about to finally encounter hope. In Luke chapter 1, 11, verses 11 through 17, the, as we continue, the text says, Then there appeared to him, an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here now, into Zacharias's disheartened frame of mind, and into the desecrated holy place is hope spoken and set. Hope promised in the form of a son. And this son would be an answer to both Zacharias's personal need and the nation's larger need. 
This son would fill Zacharias' heart with joy, and he would be able to pass on to him his love for the Lord and his holy word. And in turn, this son would turn Israel's hearts back to God by bearing witness to the reality that despite all the horror and hopelessness that has haunted and taunted Israel all these years, God is still with them, still at work, and still the bringer of salvation. Here in the angel's message is the hope that Zacharias has always sought. And yet, it's hard to hope. In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How can I know that this will happen? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. Sometimes life can hurt so deeply and we can go without hope for so long that we just refuse to believe it, even when it's right in front of us after so many years of disappointment. Hope can hurt. It can feel like just one big tease. When our traumatized memories of the past color our experience of the present, we often will despair to hope for the future. But in verse 19, the angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Now, in one sense, we could view this as God giving Zechariah a time out. But God's discipline is not punitive or punishing. God's discipline is instructional. And to be candid, I see this silence as a gift. It's kind of like an extended Sabbath of silence. When our hearts are hard and it hurts to hope, maybe even upsetting to hope. Silence and prayerful contemplation can be like a tiller to the soil. The silence gives us space to cleanse our soul or soil from the things that keep it from receiving the hope God offers us. To teach him to hope again, God made Zechariah silent for the next nine months, so that as Elizabeth's belly would grow, so would Zechariah's hopeful 
anticipation of this gift of a son. While Zechariah would have to live for a season in silence, his wife's belly would be a constant reminder to him that God is not silent. So, what can we learn from this story? I have a couple of suggestions here. One, allow yourself to recognize not only the possibility, but the likelihood that life and its hurts have hardened your heart. It is very easy for us to read this story about Zechariah encountering an angel and we might be tempted to judge him for not taking the message seriously as if we would have been so much more enlightened. The humble approach would be to admit that we would probably have reacted the same way. And therefore, the humble approach now is to acknowledge that, like Zechariah, our hearts do tend to grow hard through the life and the hurts that we have experienced. It's how life in a fallen world works. We're not immune to the hurt. We are not an exception. So let's not act like it. Let's save some time and save ourselves by owning the fact that, yeah, my heart tends to harden over time. There's nothing shameful in admitting to it. There's nothing wrong or embarrassing with acknowledging that, yeah, we do tend to get hurt, and let our hearts harden because of it. There is no shame in it. We should not be insecure because of that fact. The only shame would be to not admit it, because admitting it sets us up for resolving it. A second suggestion, therefore, is allow yourself to acknowledge the harm that a heart hardened against hope can cause. Yes, depression, anger, resentment, unhealthy lifestyles. But the bigger picture is that when our hurt or our traumatized memories of the past harden or harm how we experience and process the present, we learn to not even want to face the future, and we inevitably despair of the future. And we refuse the hope, God's gifts. And refuse the hope, God's gift And refuse the hope God has gifted to us to help shape that future. I think what I have 
most consistently experienced in people with hard hearts is a regular or constant internal resistance to anything good or hopeful. It's like they go around with an attitude that could be saying, I dare you to make me hope. My strong will and fortified facade defy your pitiful attempts to make me think that there can be anything good in this world again. And I know that in one sense, being strong and defiant is a coping mechanism or a defense mechanism or a survival technique that our bodies learned along the way to protect ourselves from getting hurt by life again. And in certain situations, that might be necessary. But the more we become conditioned to hardness and resistant to hope, the more we become unable to release the toxicity and receive the fresh air. If fresh air can't get in, toxicity can't get out. So if our lives are not ventilating properly, we will choke on our hurts. So yes, please allow yourself to acknowledge that your heart hardened against hope can cause you harm. A third suggestion is allow yourself to sit a while in prayerful reception of the hope God is gifting to you. Experiencing hope again requires that hardened resistance to be dealt with. And frankly, I think we begin to deal with it by imitating Zachariah's situation and sitting with God's gift for a while in silent, prayerful reception. And by a while, I mean however long it takes to address the resistance. It could be an hour, it could be a day, a week, a month. If the hurt that we are experiencing is lasting for a considerable amount of time, I believe it's going to take a considerable amount of prayerful contemplation to deal with that hurt. And that's not a bad thing. That is to practice the gift of hope. Sometimes this means choosing prayer and Bible reading and contemplation and serving others over the things that we would rather be doing, like, I don't know, watching TV or cell phone surfing. Maybe even choosing it over busyness. If we are so busy that we can't take time to sit in silent and prayerful contemplation with God, then we are probably overextending ourselves and nurturing hardness within our hearts. Oftentimes, the richest, deepest, and most blessed hopes are those that we have to sit with for a while. And one final suggestion regarding how we think about what this has to do with Advent. 
A great deal of the excitement that is generated during the season of Advent is the waiting and the anticipation that occurs as we await the special day. Like Zechariah, the waiting and contemplation of the hope promised builds up and heightens the anticipation, which in turn sharpens our focus helps us to more clearly envision God's promises, energizes our faith, filters out a lot of the pent-up anger and resentment that had calcified our soul. Overall, it just moves our heart, soul, and body to a place where it is ready to not only hope again, but thrive again. So, as we wrap up this episode today on the Wayward Podcast, I want to thank you for joining me. I hope this has helped stir some hopeful thoughts in you, some encouraging thoughts in you. And I just want to leave you with the encouragement that where there is a willingness to sit with God a while, there darkness is released and hope is received. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.